Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. When Janair Girardo suspected her husband was cheating, she secretly recorded him and heard the proof he was having an affair. Why do they get to be happy? And why do I have to suffer? I just love him so much, I can't take it. And then Janair began recording herself, revealing how and why she was about to kill two people. Well, more breaking news now from Delaware. Radnor police say Janair Garrido ambushed the 33-year-old. One of the big questions any mental health professional struggles with is, isn't everybody who commits murder mentally ill? To which most of us would say no, not necessarily. From Podcast One, I'm Barbara Schroeder, writer-director of Netflix's Evil Genius, introducing Bad Bad Thing. The shocking story that made headlines around the world. Subscribe to Bad Bad Thing at Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts. He turned me into a monster because he doesn't know anything about honesty. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, very exciting guest today. And of course, reminder, keep the wind in the sail of the Corolla pirate ship. Support the people that support us here. It really does help things out. And uh, we try to be very careful about the people that I'm uh, representing on this podcast. So hopefully uh, the things that uh, you get access to will be worth your while. Uh, don't forget, uh, check things out for me at drdrew.com. We do a streaming show at least three to five days a week. Uh, right now, you can get a drdrew.tv or a drdrew.com for the other pods, your mom's house, all that good stuff there. Uh, if you have any questions or you want me to get into anything with you guys, usually contact at drdrew.com is a good way to reach me. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Psalms. The book is The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which is something that is deeply fascinating to me. Uh, we have many different issues addressed in the book in terms of mind-body connection. Uh, why does anything feel like anything? <laughs> and he is one of the bolder thinkers in neuroscience and trying to solve this problem. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark with a K underscore Psalms, S-O-L-M-S. And um, Dr. Solmes, I think I ran across you on Ginger, Ginger Campbell's podcast, who I've interviewed on this podcast as well, her Brain Science podcast, and I was immediately struck and fascinated. So thank you for joining me here. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I suppose the first place to start is to give us a little sense of what we would get by reading the book. Well, um, it's it's what the title says, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. Um and its its premise is that uh, we, we've been looking in the wrong place. We've been focusing on cortical uh, functions, uh, cognitive functions. Uh, co- the cortex uh, is a wonderful thing. It performs many, um, you know, uh, fabulous, uh, complex um, information processing tasks, but it is not intrinsically conscious. Um, it is its consciousness is entirely. Uh, 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 derived from brainstem arousal. Um, the brainstem generates a different sort of consciousness uh, from cognitive consciousness, and that is feeling, affect. Uh, the best known affects, of course, are the emotions. So um, since brainstem arousal uh, is prerequisite for cognitive consciousness, um, and since the cortex can, in fact, perform uh, its functions without being conscious, it seems to me that that's really where we should be looking, to the brainstem and to to affective feelings, um, if we're going to understand what the fundamental mechanism of consciousness um, is, is all about. And, um, and when, we, when we do so, we, it casts a, a, a very different light um, on many scientific and uh, philosophical problems. Uh, than uh, if we approach it in the traditional way. Let's go back to the mind-body dualism for a second and Descartes' error, so-called, that uh, that thinking is some sort of um, phenomenology that's dissociated from the body. The fact that uh, affect is at the core of consciousness is runs completely counter to that philosophical axiom, that dictum, right? Because the source of affect, and I'm just going to ask you to speak about this, is the body. Yes. Um, the simplest forms of affects uh, are 
how we come to know our bodily needs. Uh, let me just make plain uh, what the defining feature of an affect is, is that it has a goodness or a badness, what we technically call valence. Um, and these good versus bad feelings, which come in various categories, uh, t- tell us how we're doing in terms of our bodily needs. So that hunger feels bad, um, eating when you're hungry feels good, um, thirst feels bad, uh, quenching it feels good, uh, sleepiness feels bad, um, you know, uh, t- taking a, a, a rest in those circumstances feels good, and, and so on. So the basic uh, quality, um, the, the fundamental uh, qualities of affect are bound up with the body. And so, as you say, the, the mind-body uh, dichotomy uh, is, 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 has to be conceptualized very differently when it comes to affects, which, are, which announce states of the body uh, to, to, to the mind, as it were. Right, and sort of drive thinking, which is Descartes' error that it was sort of disconnected from that. At very minimum, you could modify his dictum to say, well, I think, therefore— God creates matter that's capable of thinking. <laughs> that's about the best I can do with his axiom. Said, Otherwise, it sort of falls apart based on currently available neuroscientific uh, understanding. So, uh, so the brainstem. I, you know, I, I'm I'm having a little trouble with locating. I I, I don't want to oversimplify this because it's such a complicated topic in reality. The brainstem, are you saying, is the source of consciousness or is the requisite signaling center for consciousness to develop? Because those are two very different phenomena, correct? Yes. Well, I, I want to just pick up on a word you used a few moments ago, which is drive. Yeah. Uh, the the brainstem drives the cortex. Yeah. It, it literally makes demands upon the cortex to perform work. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that dictum of Descartes that you cited, I, I would phrase it, I feel, therefore I am, therefore I think. Mm. In other words, cognition is in the service of meeting our needs. Right. Um, and the way in which we become aware of our needs uh, is by feeling them. Well, I, gotta, uh, I, must, I must tell you that that exact observation is what caught me in the field of addiction medicine. It's why I became fascinated with it because I got to witness every day disturbed thinking under the service of a false god. In other words, the addiction at its core is a drive disorder. It's a it's a usurpation of the do-it-again part of the brain, the, the survival system in the brain and the – all the other sort of uh, – Feel-good centers. I mean, there's there's the the wanting and the and the liking. Those are two different systems. And to me, the the wanting system is really the primary issue in what's taken over in addiction. And even when they you know don't like it, they still want it. And that disturb that drives incredibly wild and disturbed thinking. That the person who's under the influence of these altered motivations has no idea that the thinking is distorted or the, or what's driving the distorted thinking. I think that's a, a, a really uh, excellent example of what we're talking about. Anybody who struggles with addiction uh, knows uh, the, the relative power um, of thinking versus feeling. You know, the, the, the compulsive desire um, to uh, uh, imbibe these substances because of what they make us feel uh, overrides the, the most obvious rational cognitive appraisal as to whether or not this is good for us. It, it's, you know, so even when we think this yeah, is bad, I don't yeah. want to do this, I shouldn't do this. That's right. To. Well, and there's even a more fascinating part of this that I got to witness every day, which is it takes over the thinking. So, so the thinking – so somebody could be literally having no craving, be not be thinking about using, have been sober for four months and will announce to me – you know, I I just it's funny. I just called Susie the other day and I think I need to go see Susie and she was such a good friend. It's like Susie supplied you your effing heroin. What are you talking about? But no awareness that I mean obviously that was kind of an extreme example because Susie becomes coupled with the reward of heroin. But even more things. I need to move to San Francisco. I just I just that's where I belong or or I need to go to San Francisco to clear out my apartment. All that under no sense of awareness on behalf of the patient 
that that's all part of the drive system staging them to use. They have no awareness of that. It's crazy. It's it's why we tell people when they're early in recovery, and you see all this crazy thinking primarily in the first year, don't rely on your brain. Every thought you have will be under the service of this distorted motivation. You can't you can't rely on your thinking. And people have grave difficulty with that, particularly in a country. I don't know. You're in South Africa right now. But in this country, they have grave uh, weird emotional reactions to the notion that their freedoms and freedom of thought and freedom of motivation is somehow something that can't be trusted and is terribly motivated, ter- terribly distorted. Yeah, how ironic because uh, there's hardly a less free state than to be addicted to something. Right. That's right. That's right. And and again, people think addictive is about the craving and the withdrawal and all that. No, 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 no. The stinking thinking that goes on for a long time is what you're really at the mercy of. Your brain starts telling you things are good ideas that will get you back to the disease. Anyway, let's, let's leave addiction on the sideline here for a minute because that's just an interesting and sort of extreme example of what we're talking about. Can, can you build your model of consciousness uh, forward from affect and brainstem? Yes. Um, I, I just before we leave that subject entirely, I just want to say that there's a long and venerable history of using extreme states, pathological states, um, as a window uh, into the, what is the, the normal mechanism. Yep. So, you know, it's precisely because in pathology, things, lines of fracture open up. So that you get to see something about how the business works, uh, that's 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 not so easy to recognize and, when 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 everything is going smooth. And, and let me interrupt you, and, and interrupt you, and say yeah. that's not strictly the brain stuff. I mean, it's funny, neurology and hematology are the both to me the most extreme examples. Uh, you know, leukemias develop in a cell line. You get to see how the cell develops, and there's an error at some point of development. And that shows you that point in development that you might not even have been aware of, but there it is, and that becomes a tumor line. Same thing with the brain. Strokes, infections, whatever it might be, we get to see how those areas work when they're gone or are dysfunctioning. So uh, you asked me to build up from what I've said uh, about a brainstem um, arousal affect uh, in relation to cortical cognition. Um, uh, Let me remind you that the... Uh, the great preoccupation of neuroscience in, in the last two to three decades has been the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Um, and uh, it, it basically boils down to the claim that uh, if you understand the mechanisms whereby cognitive functions um, are performed, it doesn't tell you anything about why they feel like something, why there's something it is like, for example, to see. Um, you can process visual information without conscious awareness, and it still does the same job. Uh, You can learn uh, without knowing that you've learned anything. It still influences your future behavior. So so this is is the basis of the hard problem, that the the subjective awareness of all of this information processing doesn't seem to do anything. Um, And the the mechanisms whereby uh, we can explain everything that the information processing does uh, have no place for feeling. So it's as if it's as if awareness, experience, subjectivity exists in some sort of parallel universe and possibly serves no purpose at all. Now, uh, when you when you uh, redirect your focus to brainstem arousal and affect, uh, that problem changes entirely. the The mechanism that explains why we feel something um, has to account for why there's something it is like to have a feeling. Uh, because the essential function of feeling is feeling. Break, 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 that, break that down a little bit. Break, break it down a little more. So let, let's kind of make sure, because I think that's a critical point. So there, there exists this thing feeling, correct? Uh, yeah. and, that is a, and that is something that is necessarily felt somewhere, yes? The, the hard problem, though, becomes more about who's feeling it. Why is this subjective being feeling it, right? Yes. Okay, so t- take so, it, keep going. <laughs> Okay, so as we were saying a few minutes ago, um, feeling is the announcing uh, to yourself uh, how you are doing in in your embodied existence. So um, the subject that does the feeling uh, is precisely the being of the body. It's how you become aware of the state of your body. So there's no need to add this extra ingredient called the subject. Uh, The subject simply is 
the, 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 the being of the body, and affect is the state of the body. Valence state, it's intrinsic, it has this intrinsic existential um, imperative. You know, if you're doing badly, it means carry on this way, you're going to die. Um, and uh, if you are able to correct your current course, uh, then you know you're, you're going to survive. So it's a it's an intrinsically subjective, uh, intrinsically valuative, and intrinsically meaningful, precisely to the subject, uh, is is affect. So it it, it really changes uh, quite dramatically uh, the whole nature uh, of the hard problem, the mechanism whereby we become aware of how well or badly we're doing in relation to our various biological needs. Um, doesn't suffer the same problem uh, as vision and learning and 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 all cognitive functions. Uh, they can go on in the dark, and for the most part, they do go on in the dark. And your your mobile telephone uh, has memory and perception um, and executive functions and so on. But it certainly there's nothing it is like to be a mobile phone, and that is because it doesn't have this basic principle. Uh, which is what sustains all living things, which is that the, 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 the essential nature of living things is that they're trying to carry on existing. Uh, the, 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 their whole aim and purpose, and I use those words advisedly because unlike mobile phones, we have an aim and a purpose, us living things, which is to carry on living. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, the, the same applies to our species as a whole. So our aim is to survive and to reproduce. In other words, to keep to keep our uh, our type of thing going. Um, uh, and uh, the, so, so that's the fundamental mechanism underpinning affect. And now to take it one step further, that mechanism is very well understood. Uh, it's instantiated by homeostasis. Homeostasis. We are we're required to remain within certain viable ranges uh, with respect to uh, multiple parameters um, that, that, that keep us alive. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, hunger, uh, it, it is how we become aware of how our energy supplies are going. Uh, thirst is you know, how our uh, hydration is going. Uh, temperature is how our thermoregulation is going. And in all of these regards, we have to stay within a narrow range. So deviations from that range... Uh, are the basis of unpleasant feelings. And returning back to that range uh, is the basis of pleasant feelings. And uh, I'm sure you'll agree that what I've just described is not exactly complicated. It's a, it's a rather simple mechanism. It's something that can be quite easily um, uh, uh, enjoined with the rest of what we know about how uh, the physical universe operates. And so it's in this way that we come to uh, to, to, to tackle this hard problem uh, in, an, in an entirely novel way. The, the, the mechanism does explain why it feels like something. The mechanism's whole purpose uh, is to, is to uh, feel enable like a subject to feel things. So I, I want to follow that logic all the way down, so to speak. So are lizards having experiences that feel like something? Or is there a difference between me, the lizard, with some awareness of feeling like something or just feeling like something? Or can't we differentiate okay, so, between those two things? Yeah. I, I, um, all living things are regulated by homeostasis, uh, but not all living things are conscious. Right. So you've taken us one step further, um, which is that so the, the, these deviations from our homeostatic set points, uh, those are demands for work. Then we have to have some sort of prediction and I'm using that word uh, uh, deliberately. We have to. The system has to have some sort of prediction as to what what needs to be done, what action will return me to my viable bounds. And I'm putting it in words. Of course, not all living things literally declare these things to themselves. But that prediction uh, comes in two uh, uh, fundamentally different uh, varieties. The first is reflex. Um, and instinct, which is just complex reflex. Uh, as long as you can operate reflexively, in other words, if your prediction is a fixed algorithm, you know, when confronted by this problem, do that, um, which is, uh, as you well know, the sort of way in which things like blood pressure are regulated. They're, they're, they're fixed uh, algorithms which are always applied reflexively, and then there's no need 
to feel that homeostatic deviation. Um, in fact, let me take it a step further, um, even beyond living things. Uh, your, your, your domestic temperature control system functions homeostatically. Um, and uh, the, the, the essential similarity between uh, these um, um, uh, non-living um, automatized uh, uh, homeostatic systems like like your 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 domestic temperature or, or your your fridge uh, functions homeostatically. Uh, the essential difference between them and conscious systems uh, is that it, you always perform the same uh, the same function. So there's a fixed uh, prediction. Uh, the problem with those systems is that they can't deal with novelty. They can, you know they always have to do the same thing. And if you're in a new situation where the same old reflex doesn't work, uh, then sorry, you, you know, you've had it. Um, so this is where consciousness comes or feeling, which is the foundational form of consciousness comes into its own. Uh, it enables you here and now, it enables the organism here and now to feel its way through uh, uh, its actions in an unpredicted environment so that you can tell uh, by the increasing or decreasing deviation felt as increasing unpleasure or, or, or its opposite, uh, uh, pleasurable feelings, whether what you're doing is working or not. That is the basis of voluntary behavior, uh, which is grounded in choice, uh, which in turn is grounded in this, this valence, this value system, uh, which, which we know about via our feelings. So that is is the critical difference. But none of that really requires subjectivity yet. No, I would say that that is is the the elemental form of felt subjectivity. Remember again that subjectivity just means, you know, the the internal perspective on the being of something. Uh, So, and that's what affect is all about. It's about monitoring the state of my own the, 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 the part of nature that I myself occupy, my body, um, it's, it's a monitoring of how well I'm doing in relation to the, the, the uh, sustainability of that system called my body. Uh, that, the, the becoming aware of that is subjectivity. And I, I would go so far as to say that sentient subjectivity is literally constituted by affect. That's why I said uh, uh, sort of semi-seriously in relation to Descartes, I feel, therefore I am. Uh, right, right. About. I get that. Uh, but the becoming aware part, I still want to drill into a little bit. So me, the lizard again, am I aware or am I just – do Actually, I have subjectivity or am I just affect and homeostasis and action? So um, I, I'm defining it in this kind of um, functional way and I'll come back to anatomy and physiology in a moment. Um, functionally, yes, uh, the, any creature that is able to make choices, that is to say, to come up with voluntary actions in unpredicted environments, uh, that's the mechanism that I'm talking about, which is underwritten by feeling, and lizards have that. Um, but I said I'm going to come back to the anatomy. The brainstem anatomy uh, that um, I, I uh, mentioned uh, uh, only in passing, I didn't, go, I didn't drill down into the details, the arousal mechanisms of the upper brainstem uh, we call, as you know, the reticular activating system. Uh, and closely coupled with the reticular activating system is the periaqueductal gray. Um, and these nuclei, we sh- not only share them uh, with lizards, uh, they, you know, they, they, they have essentially the same connectivity, um, the same neuromodulators, uh, 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 and, uh, and they perform the same functions. So uh, I, I think that what we can safely say and, and, and demonstrate by way of, uh, of falsifiable predictions um, is that all vertebrates, uh, there's every reason to believe that all vertebrates are conscious. The basic machinery that drives affect in us human beings and in all primates and in all mammals uh, is the same in all vertebrates. Now, we know what happens if you stimulate those structures in human beings because we can report you know, what it feels like. This is intensely pleasurable or intensely unpleasurable. And on that basis, we can make predictions about what will happen if we stimulate those structures in other vertebrates. And those predictions are routinely confirmed. 
Um, why, why limit so, it to vertebrates? You know, unless we're going to set a higher bar for consciousness than anything else in science, uh, it's, uh, the, just using the, the, the basic method of falsifiable predictions, um, it, seems as, it seems that we have good reason to believe that your, the lizard that you alluded to is conscious. You know, you spoke of uh, drugs of abuse. Um, vertebrates uh, are attracted to uh, zebrafish, for example, uh, they 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 show place preference behavior in a tank uh, where uh, if you if you if you put on the one side of the tank you 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 place cocaine or amphetamine uh, or nicotine um, or morphine the fish gravitate to that part of the tank uh, because that's where they can get these substances which do them no nutritional good at all they only feel good uh, 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 in the short term. And so uh, this is what I mean by weighty evidence for the claim uh, that these lowly, so-called lowly creatures, all the way, uh, all vertebrates, I think, uh, we, have to, we have to assume, uh, we have to infer uh, from the evidence uh, that they are capable of this elemental form of consciousness, which is, which is feeling. And why that doesn't mean only vertebrates, but certainly I would claim it for all vertebrates. I'm less certain about any, uh, any non-vertebrates. Why? Because the same well, structures aren't there? Same brain structures are absent? Primarily, yeah. they don't have homologous structure. Yeah. And so I'm not saying they're not conscious, but for two, but for two reasons I'm dubious. Um, the one is that we, we can't make these testable predictions that I was referring to because we have no... We are the only creatures that we know are conscious. Uh, we know from our own experience that we are conscious. So from that, you know, and determining where the consciousness comes from in us, we can then make these uh, on the basis of homologous uh, 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 anatomy. Uh, we can make we can make falsifiable predictions about the behavior of other animals and the functionality that I spoke of. That they can make choices in novel environments. They don't only behave reflexively. Uh, they 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 make they make choices um, which 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 are which are guided by what's a, what what is a, a, a viable for them. Now, when it comes to say cephalopods, which is the the big problem that people always refer to, an octopus. Octopus, you know, its anatomy, brain anatomy, is so different from ours. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard to know where to begin. Um, but functionally, they do show the they show the function that I just referred to. Uh, that they are able to solve no novel problems. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly possible that they're conscious, but um, I just feel, you know, we, we gradually become less certain. The evidence becomes more and more uncertain. And we have to accept that, you know, there, there's degrees um, of confidence and inconfidence. It's not, a, it's not a, a sharp demarcation between these definitely are conscious, these definitely are not. There's a gray area in between. And you know, well, that's how everything in evolution works. Uh, it's not. It's not surprising. I'm just thinking about what it's like to be something. I mean, it it kind of doesn't make sense from our perspective because we because it is bodily based. Whatever it is like to be anything, or at least based in the embedded in the body. I mean, what it's like to be a bat is something we just. It doesn't make sense even to talk about in a weird way, right? I don't agree. <laughs> bats, uh, bats are mammals, um, and uh, they sh they share uh, not only the brainstem circuitry that I was talking about earlier, but some of the circuitry built on top of that. What what we call limbic circuitry, um, they share that uh, with with us. So you're referring now to uh, Tom Nagel's uh, famous 1974 paper, "What Is It Like to Be a Bat," uh, and you know he. Um, the, the whole thing focused on the extraceptive, the differences in extraceptive sensory uh, capacities between us and bats. Um, that's why he used the bat as his example. Uh, and and uh, I say, uh, yeah, uh, what I said at the start of our conversation, that using extraceptive perception um, uh, and, and the cognition derived from it, uh, as a starting point for understanding what it is like to be something is the wrong place to start because those functions are not intrinsically conscious. Uh, I would go a step further and say we feel our way into our perceptions and our cognitions. 
Uh, and that is how we become conscious of them. We become conscious of these intrinsically unconscious processes. And the evidence for them being intrinsically unconscious is just enormous, enormous. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so I completely agree with you. Uh, but I want to take this in a slightly different direction right now and just sort of explore a line of thinking on this. Um, why isn't a baby or a young child able to – uh, have a subjective experience per se, or report a subjective experience, or remember a subjective experience. The critical word uh, in what you just said is report. Uh, reportability. Um, I mean, from an empirical point of view, from a methodological point of view, reportability is a perfectly reasonable criterion. You know, if if somebody can't report uh, a, a subjective state, then how on earth are you ever going to determine whether it's there? Uh, but that doesn't doesn't mean uh, that because you can't report it, it is not there. Uh, I mean, this is ultimately um, a, sl- a very slippery slope. Um, we we uh, I, I think that uh, uh, let me take the example um, of hydranencephalic children. Uh, these are children who are born without any cortex, um, but they wake up in the morning, um, they go to sleep at night. Uh, they are uh, subject to absent seizures, so they lose consciousness and they regain consciousness. So in this uh, very rudimentary sense of you know, wakefulness, um, they, uh, they, they clearly possess consciousness. But much more telling uh, is the fact that if it, they show affects, they show emotions, they show joy, they, sh- they laugh, uh, they show anger, frustration, irritability, they cry, uh, they respond to pain, they respond with, with, with fright uh, to, to, uh, to uh, uh, stop, they show you know, startle uh, reactions, etc. Always, uh, not always, but I mean, you know, as much as you and me, uh, in a situationally appropriate uh, uh, manner. So these are kids uh, who, who have absolutely no cortex, uh, no capacity to report for that reason, because language most certainly is a cortical function. Uh, but are you going to claim that there isn't something it is like to be such a child? Uh, and on what basis would you claim it? Because you know all the evidence, uh, every prediction that you make from the hypothesis that there is something it is like to be such a child is confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, yes, I am most secure uh, when uh, re- when, a, when a subjective state can be reported, uh, I am most confident that it is there. But I, I don't think it follows that uh, if it can't be reported, it's not there. Uh, I, I, it, it's for sure the development of language is a requisite in reporting, of course. But if we took language out, what is changing as that child develops that gives them the capacity to report anything, I mean, that, this experience? What what What's moving along that the child's awareness is changing to the point that he or she can report something, language taken out of the conversation? Well, um, it's, it becomes difficult for me to know what you mean by reporting in that case because I would say – No, if, and what I'm saying is if, they, can, they can use language and language is a requisite and language develops. There's no doubt about that. But are there other things developing that expands their experience – whatever it is, that they're now reporting on? Is something changing from age zero to five? And what is other than language that they're reporting on? Yes, I see what you mean. Well, the major thing that's changing is the the coming on stream, as it were, um, of association cortex. Uh, That is to say, um, uh, inferior parietal lobule, you know, lateral surface of the temporal lobes, and most important of all, uh, the prefrontal cortex. So this is the, the, the with, with with this extra machinery, uh, you not only have extraceptive phenomenal consciousness, but you have the capacity to reflect upon uh, your 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 extracept your your cognitive representations. And with this comes uh, the capacity uh, for uh, um, uh, modes of cognition uh, like it, this. Experience belongs to me. Yes. Uh, I am an I am an object like other objects in the world, except yes. I'm inside this object, um, and you know these feelings are located inside this object called me. So you can start having these 
And this, I think, um, is a, is a, is you know, the function of language more than being a tool for communication. Um, it is a, it, it is a vehicle for precisely this kind of information processing where you can, where you can codify uh, in a third person abstract form, uh, observations uh, which ca- which can which which can be communicated not only to others but also to yourself so it's sort of communication with yourself okay um, i think is is, yeah. is what you're what you're yeah, yeah. asking I, about. I, I am i've told you before health insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of an emergency medical flight even with comprehensive coverage you can still get hit i think most people know with a substantial deductible or co-pays Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency rises, the expense of an Air Medical Transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get a $50 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com slash Drew and use offer code Drew. The Knocking Down Doors podcast aims to end the stigma around addiction, recovery, mental health. Celebrities, experts, everyday people share their stories and how they manage adversity and the treatment of addiction with honesty, vulnerability, and humor. Host Jason Lachance is in recovery from alcoholism, also trauma stemming from living in a home of addiction, sexual, and emotional abuse. He has passion, and every individual can turn their struggles into a superpower, helping others in the process. He's not wrong about that. Co-host Mikey Naraki has also dealt with substance use disorder, also anxiety, and he is passionate about shedding the issues that can keep you from becoming your best self. For a weekly dose of positivity, touches of humor, and uplifting stories from those who have, well, been there, subscribe to Knocking Doors Down wherever you get podcasts or find the show at kddpodcast.com. Inside Tracker uses science, technology, ultra personalized guidance specifically for you. Consumers choose the recommendations that are most compatible. Each recommendation, backed by science, rigorously reviewed and directly linked to published peer reviewed scientific research. They don't just show you normal biomarker zones. They show you the optimal biomarker zones and numbers that are best for your body. Inside Tracker is the only human performance system that integrates real-time physiomarker data from your fitness tracker with your existing blood and DNA biomarker data. Unprecedented combination of blood, DNA, fitness tracking that all adds together to create an exponential level of precision and customization to your Inside Tracker action plan. So for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to Inside Tracker, that is T-R-A-C-K-E-R, InsideTracker.com slash Drew, and see if this isn't something you might be interested in. InsideTracker.com slash Drew. Again, see what's right for you there. BetterHelp is sponsoring this podcast, and if you are feeling depressed or struggling with relationships, well, there's many things BetterHelp can offer you online. Professional counselors who can listen and help assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist, start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not a self-help line. Professional counseling done securely. Broad range of expertise available, and it's available worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in a waiting room in an uncomfortable office. Better help. They're excellent providers. I've referred family, friends, patients. They are committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. In fact, they're more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is also available. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Our podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and our listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com. Visit betterhelp.com and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced BetterHelp professional. And, and so the the me now the I, would we distinguish subjectivity between an I and a me? In other words, is yeah, the lizard is an I, but the me now is a new thing, right? That you just described, and I totally agree. It's parietal and prefrontal. Is that a, is that a new kind of subjectivity? Is that subjectivity? What, what do we? How do we understand that? 
I, I believe it is a higher uh, elaboration of subjectivity. Okay. I think that many people uh, actually use that as their criteria. That's what they mean when they speak of subjectivity yes. or consciousness That's right. or self. I, I agree. They with mean you. this cognitive reflective capacity. Yes. Yes. Um, but 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 it is uh, to me the core ingredient. Even of that, yeah. the core ingredient is yes. that first there has to be something it is like um, to sure. be able to reflect upon. For, for and sure. uh, uh, so, so I, I think that we, when we speak of subjectivity, we should start with that foundational form um, and then uh, recognize that our anthropocentric version uh, of what we mean by subjectivity is just that. You know, it's our kind of subjectivity. But it's it's by no means the only kind of subject. Yeah, I get it. I get. I think it's a this a really very interesting kind of uh, elaboration. And, and so let me ask this: If I at age one get lost in the woods and I come out at fifteen, there will be. Th- and again, I will not have language, but we're going to take language out of the whole phenomenology here. Will I have the same concept of me? And I was raised by wolves or rabbits or something. I was not. I didn't see people. I was in the woods. I was raised by something else. Uh, and let's say they were non-social creatures, just for the sake of argument. We know that the prefrontal cortex will evolve differently. Will I have a me evolved in the woods like that? I I, I expect, as we see with feral children uh, who have actually been observed, uh, that uh, it will be a very it will be a very idiosyncratic uh, type of, uh, of, of meanness. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in other words, the personalities uh, of, of these kids are you know, not the same as yours and mine. So That's it right. makes a difference yeah. uh, if you don't have language. But the basic capacity for reflective cognition, to be able to reflect upon your own existence and use that kind of representation of yourself uh, in your cognitions, uh, there's 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 no reason to believe that a child uh, a feral child uh, a, a, a child who's never been taught language uh, would not have that basic uh, capacity uh, of what the prefrontal lobes do. I well, say again, I, I think that that capacity underpins language. Yeah, I know. I hear you. I, I get I yeah. get all that, but I'm going to turn over all my cards and make one further case, which is that social creatures see themselves reflected in others. I mean, think of the the time and energy spent, moms back and forth, attuning and reflecting, and and that's the second-order representation of the self that we know contributes markedly to the prefrontal cortex and the orbital frontal system is requires reflection of other humans. I would argue the same thing happens in dolphins and elephants, and the more social the creature, the more likely this mechanism is going to be there. And that's where this more elaborated subjectivity develops is in a social context of really seeing me experienced by someone else. And so it's actually outside of my skull where the me first develops. And then I'm bringing it back into my skull myself to reflect it. Does that fit your theory? Yes, uh, except I would just remind you that uh, humans, well, I don't need to remind you because you've just said so yourself. Uh, I'd, I'd like to remind our, our audience uh, uh, that um, humans are far from being unique uh, by being social animals. Um, and uh, you know, the, social, the social structure, not only of other primates, but of other mammal species, uh, is remarkably complex. Um, and the relationship uh, between a, a, a baby and caregiver, um, you know, applies not only to other mammals, but even to birds. But certainly it applies. I mean, the defining feature of mammals is that we need to be suckled. Uh, we need to be cared for. And so this relation, this relatedness um, uh, is, 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 is deeply built into uh, the mammalian phenotype. Yeah. Now, I want to, having said that, um, I want to draw attention to one particular emotion, uh, which which is which seems to be unique to mammals. It may be it may be some some uh, 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 some sort of germinal version of it in birds, uh, but certainly in all mammals we see play. Mammals play, um, and in, uh, and we 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 we've studied play uh, deeply, and 
the, the rules of play, uh, which apply across mammal species, uh, what I'm saying now is not a uniquely human thing, is that you have to titrate your, uh, the way you are behaving uh, in relation to the response of your playmate. Uh, if you don't take account of, you know, uh, is, this, is my playmate going to carry on with this game? Uh, in other words, if you don't have some sense of other minds, some sense of some theory of mind, some ability to 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 um, to uh, predict, represent, and represent, uh, predict. Yes, and and from that yeah. to predict uh, how things are going for your playmate, that the, 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 the play uh, ends. And as you describe so it, it's it's a, it's it's in a play in itself is a deeply homeostatic back and forth process. Oh yes, yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I think that kind of when you spoke of social relatedness and you know isn't this really a, a, a fundamental uh, to selfhood uh, an ability to 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 see yourself in the mind of another uh, I think that any animal that can play uh, yeah. can in some in everything I'm saying you know remember I'm not claiming that it's the same yeah. uh, in humans yeah. as it is in, in, in all mammals yeah. but I'm saying that in, in its fundamental sort of the, the the basic functionality is there in all mammals. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah, I I believe my dog has subjectivity of a, of a self. Of uh, now, it's very self centered, much much like the feral child would have been. But uh, exactly. there's de- but there's definitely the other thing we have not spoken of is um, it's kind of a ancillary topic. But we've not really we're, we're being very careful with our terms here, which is really what's required to have this conversation. I hope people get we're being extremely careful about self, me, I. We're, we're you know subjectivity. These are distinctly different things, though some of these things are on continuums with other things. But we've not really discussed emotion, and I just wonder where you fit on the sort of defining is is emotion merely an expression of affect? Is it just part of the the motor function of trying to establish homeostasis that happens to get reflected in certain activities or facial expressions. Where do you come in with that? Yeah. Well, you know, there's the, the, it's, it's surely no accident that you prefaced this question with a, a, a remark about, you know, how careful one has to be about terminology. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the problem here, you know, the word emotion simply means different things to different people. Oh, yeah. And, until we have some generally agreed upon denotation, um, I think it, all we can do is just be explicit about what each of us what should be explicit about what we mean by emotion. So for me, um, affect is the is the broader concept. Yep. Affect affect means means a qualitatively valenced uh, subjective uh, state of of, you know, of of the monitoring of these needs, yeah. uh, but bodily needs are clearly not emotions. So hunger, thirst, pain, sleepiness, the need to urinate, and so on. Uh, these are not emotions, but they are affects. Um, and then emotions are a subset of affects. Um, and again, there's no sharp dividing line. Uh, but I would the way I the way I divide them is between bodily affects and emotional affects. What do I mean by emotional affects? I mean, it doesn't relate to a thing like oxygen, water, uh, uh, temperature. It relates to another agent, usually a conspecific, uh, but not exclusively. You mentioned your dog a moment ago. You, you and your dog have emotions about each other. Um, but emotional relations are, are relations to other sentient beings, to other, to other, to other mental agents. And the, and the crucial distinguishing feature, you know, when you need, you know, so let me, before I get to the crucial feature, let me just be clear what I mean by uh, an emotion. I mean, uh, uh, in relation to, a, to another agent, it means things like, you know, I need this person to look after me. Uh, that's, that's an, uh, this person, I want them to be close to me. Uh, this person, um, I want them to, they, they, they're coming for me. They're making me scared. Uh, I want to escape from them. This person is frustrating me and, and standing between me and the things that I want. Uh, I'm feeling irritated uh, and ultimately angry uh, towards this person. So this is what I mean by you know relations to not things but agents. Um, and the crucial difference here is that it is much more difficult to predict uh, what to do. Uh, how, how do I go about? Uh, 
uh, fulfilling these needs. Uh, what, what makes it so much more difficult is precisely because other mines have needs of their own and they're much harder to predict. They're not like a, an orange just sits there and a bowl of water just sits there. Um, the, so the, I think that the, 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 the basic distinction between bodily affects and emotional affects has to do with this business of, of unpredictability. So if, it, if we just go back for a minute to what we were saying earlier about reflexes and instincts, uh, when it comes to emotional affects, we have reflexes and instincts, but they just aren't even nearly enough. So we have to supplement them through learning uh, from experience. And so emotions are also highly individualized uh, because uh, depending on what uh, environment you find yourself in, you've got to learn how to meet all of those needs in relation to the people uh, that, that that happen to constitute your family, your your community, et cetera. And again, that's um, a lot of so, that is built off somebody else understanding you, so you understand yourself, and then you begin understanding them. It's this back and forth rapprochement. But um, I tell you, just if people are thinking uh, about this construct that you just put forward, I, I just want to point out that even if it's a tree branch that hits us in the head that we get angry at, we tend to anthropomorphize that tree branch. Like, I'm angry at that tree branch for doing that to me as though it had yeah. some anthropomorphic quality to it. The, the other thing I want to sort of point out is do not confuse affect and mood. Uh, we do in medicine tend to use those terms interchangeably a lot. We are not talking about mood. That's another topic. <laughs> and, and mood can affect all these other things as well. Exactly. So, well, listen. I I feel like that that is the that is the survey I was hoping to take, uh, and it, you did not disappoint me. Trust me. I I, I love the construct, and it, it's such a relief to see the body uh, being put at the center of the conversation about. For, for you know, maybe I'm getting a little grandiose here, but the human experience. And and thereby the experience of many other uh, animals and, and vertebrates and mammals, um, but it's weird to me that emotions and affect have been <laughs> been pushed out for so long, and even now you'll have to fight, you have to claw your way back to talk about emotions it, or affects, which I find just astonishing. Um, so I'm so delighted that you you've built this construct and that people can access. And if you want more, it's the Hidden Spring. A journey to the source of consciousness. I suggest you get it, read it, familiarize, familiarize yourself with this material because this is the important stuff. This, this is everything else is just uh, window dressing when you get right down to it. To me, it's also why I'm sure you must be consulted on this all the time. It's also why AI is likely to be—I don't want to say a failure, but ha have deficiencies. Yeah, I, I uh, until very recently, I, I've, I've taken a disdainful dis lack, lack of interest in AI because, you know, I've, I've, I've always thought, well, there's just they're, 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 these um, impressive as these uh, uh, machines may be, uh, they lack the most fundamental ingredient of, right. of you know, of, of a mind. Yeah. And that is exactly what we've been talking about, the red thread through our conversation. What is it like to be yeah. uh, that, that uh, information processing device? And uh, there's, there's no reason to believe uh, that any of these uh, computers, you just look at the basic design principles, you can see, well, they don't function. Uh, they're, they're not trying to continue existing. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're just processing information uh, in the way that, and I hear I'm going to say something slightly alarming, in the way that our cortex does if you mm. disembody it. You know, the mm -hmm. cortex is just that's, it's an information processing device uh, with, with dedicated tasks, and uh, you know that's really why I'm saying the cortex too uh, is not is not really uh, where, where where the mind is at. And and then I would go a step beyond that and say so. Therefore, artificial intelligence is not really what what I, what I think is interesting. Um, the possibility of an artificial consciousness is another story. You know, um, and and so only in the, in the, when I said I've never been interested in artificial intelligence because I've just thought it's got nothing to do with minds. Yeah. Um, but but w when I said uh, uh, about half an hour ago that the mechanism of affect is homeostatic and that it's not that complicated, uh, affect is an extended form of homeostasis. You can reduce uh, to uh, to to sort of causal laws 
how, how uh, this extended form of homeostasis works. And so I do not think it's an, an impossibility uh, that one could engineer uh, a, 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 a simple form of consciousness in the form of a, 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 a machine, an, an artificial being, uh, that's basic design principle is it's trying to carry on existing uh, and that it has to monitor its own states, uh, let's say, you know, energy supply and, 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 and temperature and so on. I, I, I don't think it's impossible uh, that, that we could uh, reverse engineer uh, that uh, homeostatic mechanism and of course, it would be nothing like animal consciousness, let alone human consciousness. But to me, it is not a logical impossibility uh, that we could have a a, 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 a machine uh, of the, of a homeostatic self-organizing kind with with, with with predictive machinery and so on that we've been talking about in our conversation that would have some kind of artificial sentience, something like you know becoming aware of dwindling energy supplies and the existential crisis that it poses for, for that system. I, I love that being the gauntlet we will lay down and leave and let others continue to think about and perhaps pick it up. Uh, but I think that's a – I've never thought of that and that's a fascinating challenge. It's very interesting and you could really go down a rabbit hole thinking about where that might go. <laughs> but, but I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, is there a website? Yeah, I know you have Twitter at Mark underscore Psalms. Is anything else you want to refer people to? No, uh, that's the only the only um, one of those. Uh, I mean, I'm also on LinkedIn, but that's a whole different story. Twitter is the best way to uh, to, to stay in touch uh, with what I'm doing. You know, if I'm giving lectures wherever I can, I, I load them up onto onto uh, um, that that uh, Twitter address. And uh, I'm very active on it. So right. I think that's the best way. All right. Well, I will follow you there. And I just – I didn't – I missed this about your history that you're a psychoanalyst. Is that is that true? Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, – I'll tell you what happened. I uh, I mean, I don't – do we have uh, three minutes? Three minutes. Or? Three minutes. Yeah. But then I got to run. So, yeah. So I, I uh, became very frustrated in the early 80s when I trained. That you know, this this stuff we've been talking about, which is what the mind is about, it just wasn't there, you know, in, in the cognitive neuroscience of those. That's things. right. That's right. So yeah, so I, I uh, it, it was an act of desperation. I thought, well, it, for all of their faults, uh, psychoanalysts at least they do actually study the lived life of the mind. So let me go and you know, let me go and train uh, in that language and in that that concept uh, that, and also those methods, and then bring them into neuroscience. So that's what I that's what I did. That's great. Um, that's amazing. And, I, yeah. I do you know do you know Peter Fonagy? I'm I was sort of referencing yes. some of his, yeah. So I was kind of referencing some of his stuff here a little bit. And uh I I do think that this confluence of psychoanalysis and neuroscience is a massively important thing to be uh entertained. I agree. So we will leave it at that and uh I'm so glad you're doing this work. And uh any anything coming up we should be look out for? We'll just we'll just get the hidden spring, right? We'll worry about what's well, coming up. Well, that's the first thing I would yeah, I would the Journal of Consciousness Studies uh, to my delight uh, is bringing out a special uh, well I don't think the whole issue but most of the issue uh, the the fourth issue this year will be devoted to, to my book. Why I'm mentioning it is because there, there will be commentaries by the very Tom Nagel that we spoke of earlier. Oh, what is it like to be fantastic, a Fantastic, fantastic. Also Daniel Dennett um, and um, uh, Carl Friston uh, of Free Energy Principle fame um, and uh, Lionel Nakash, the global workspace theory guy. So uh, if our audience want to see you know, what, what, how my colleagues in philosophy and neuroscience are responding uh, to my book, uh, that would be an issue to which, which, which is which is fantastic, and this is the other layer we really didn't get into, which is philosophy, which is the top layer in all this. And uh, I think Dennett coined the term "the hard problem," didn't he? Is that uh, it was David Chalmers? Chalmers, that's right, Chalmers. Yes, that. in the very journal that we're talking about, that's where he coined it in 1995. The journal again. Yeah. Journal of Consciousness journal Studies. Journal of Consciousness Studies. Fantastic, yeah. Dr. Psalms. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Vinyard. Thanks Cheers. for having me. Our pleasure. We'll hope Bye-bye. to talk to you again. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Pluto TV is playing the biggest movies every night this summer for free. Watch hit movies like The Matrix, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Scary Movie, Runaway Bride, and more all summer long. Check out the biggest stars like The Rock, Keanu Reeves, Tom Cruise, Julia Roberts, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and more. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of free TV channels in English and Spanish featuring TV shows, news, sports, comedy, and more, all for free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device, including Android and Apple smartphones. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.